Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, greetings from Seattle, which is where I am right now. Um, actually, technically, I'm in Bellevue, which this is my impression. I, I'm not an expert on this. I've, I've, I've been to Seattle many, many times because I have family in Washington State. It's also a place where I would switch planes to go to Alaska. My impression has always been that Bellevue is sort of to Seattle what, I don't know, um, Westchester is to New York City or Bethesda is to Washington, D.C. It's the tonier, more upscale um, suburb. But anyone who goes to college, when you ask them where they're from, they don't say Bellevue or Bethesda or, or Westchester. They'll say New York City. Not everyone, but it happens a lot. I was amazed at how much, how much when I was in college, when I went to college, and also all my friends from high school, we would get back together and compare notes. And we all had the same experiences where you would meet people in college and be like, oh, where are you from? And they would say New York City. And and then you say, oh, really, where? And you'd have to get like three questions in before you realize that they didn't actually live in New York City. They lived, you know, in some town out in Jersey or in Armonk or whatever. And I, and I kind of get it. I, we used to, because we were city kids and kind of annoying about it. We used to take it a lot more seriously than I think it deserved. The reality is, is that, you know, often people just shorthanded that way because not so much because it sounds cooler, though I think some people do that, but because if you say Bellevue, people don't know where that is. You say Seattle, people know that. Anyway, I like Bellevue. I like Seattle. I like Seattle more <laughs> prior to the pandemic. And I liked it more the first times I was here because it seems to be one of these cities, not quite as bad as Portland, um, but that's not really high praise that has made it has the sort of collective action problem I've talked a lot about here about how big cities um, they lean into the demands of the sort of fringe activist political base that takes over the institutions of government and then panders to their own constituencies to the detriment of the tax base the detriment of middle class families and um, I think that's probably been been for the benefit of Bellevue, but again, I'm not an expert on the uh, metropolitan politics out here. Um, I am out here because we're doing a dispatch meetup uh, in a couple hours, um, and uh, me and Kevin Williamson are going to hold court, have some drinks, talk to people, do a little dog and pony kind of thing, and um, looking forward to it. I'm recording this now because I have a very, very early flight back to Washington, D.C. tomorrow, 
Um, there'll be no time in the morning to get this done and get to the airport. So this is the second Thursday in a row where I'm recording this at the end of the day. And for me, it's really the end of the day because I'm still on East Coast time. So apologies in advance if I sound blearier or rantier than normal. But let me just say in advance, thanks to everybody who showed up tonight. Uh, you're a great bunch of people. Uh, um, I'm not trying to sound stuck up, particularly since it hasn't happened yet. But the people who show up, it's very flattering. It's really reassuring um, and, and heartwarming for us at the dispatch how much enthusiasm there is for these meetups to meet people. Um, and the feedback we get is overwhelmingly just really, really uplifting and gratifying. So thank you in advance to the people that I'll be seeing later tonight uh, just for showing up, even if you want to yell at me about something, that's fine. Uh, the other thing is we've had, we had two days of back-to-back-to-back meetings um, for the dispatch, strategic stuff for 2024 where we're going to, you know, devote resources. How are we going to fix some problems with the site? You know, what are, how are we going to roll out some revenue streams and all that kind of stuff. And it was exhausting. And it was sufficiently exhausting that I am not particularly plugged into the latest news. Um, um, I did see that Kevin McCarthy gave his farewell valedictory on the floor. And the excerpts I thought were pretty funny, given how he did this sort of do what's right, regardless of what it means for your career or for the politics I get that he is cherry picking, coming up with a debt ceiling deal, but that is not exactly, I don't want to be, I don't want to kick a guy when he's down, um, but that is not exact. I, I, Kevin McCarthy is not one of the names that pops into my mind when you say the term political courage. Sort of the difference, I don't know, I was rewatching bits of Gladiator the other night. It's sort of the difference between Joaquin Phoenix's character and what's his name? You know, the gladiator guy, uh, Maximus um, Russell, I'm spacing his name. Don't email me his name. It's going to occur to me in moments, um, at least moments after I stop recording. But, you know, uh, Maximus is like your classic male virtuous character who makes sacrifices and takes, takes risks, risks for principle and the greater good. And uh, Caesar, Commodus, he has guile and a certain kind of courage, as he says, but... Um, it's all self-directed, self-motivated. Um, the only there is no cause larger than himself. And I'm not saying that Kevin McCarthy is a you know a, a Caesar, a dictatorial tyrant, or anything like that. I just think the way he has conducted himself as a politician has been um, highly instrumental. And uh, maybe I'll write about that tomorrow. I don't know. I got to write on the plane. I hate writing on planes. So anyway, I, I haven't been following a lot of the news, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the Wednesday G file about free speech. And I, I've talked about this a bunch here. I've alluded to it a bunch here in, in G file. And I kind of felt like people kept asking me, you know, what do you mean when you say you're not 100% a free speech guy. Um, so I thought I would just sort of think out loud in a G file and sort of explain where I was coming to coming from, not to be totally comprehensive, but just sort of in the context of these campus controversies. And you know, the 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 thirty second synopsis is basically that I think free speech is hugely important. Free speech values are hugely important because they're, they're liberal values and liberal values are hugely important. I think I said in the piece, like 99% out of 
99% of the time, I'm basically with the David Frenches and the Charlie Cooks and the Fires. Moreover, I think, and I think this is a really important point, and I've said it here a million times, that I don't always agree with libertarians, but I think in any room where people are making decisions or making plans in the government, you need, you should always have a libertarian in the room. You should always have that one person who asks, should government be doing anything at all? Or will government doing this make it worse? That doesn't mean I think the libertarian is always right when they think it will, when they think the answer is yes. But if you cannot answer that question, if you don't grapple with the question in a serious way, it is almost guaranteed that you're going to make a decision where the libertarian would have been right, where the libertarian, where government did make the problem worse. Um, law of unintended consequences is real. The, you know, the laws of economics are pretty clear that when you sort of muck around with the market, um, you get distortions. You know, you can't just do, I saw a poll recently that said, um, I don't know, like 80% of young people are in favor of price controls to fight inflation, as if that's never been tried. <laughs> um, you know, there are, there, are, there are times when you just sort of have to let fevers run or let people work out the problems themselves. And you need to grapple with the question is, is this one of these times? And I have a very similar view about free speech stuff, particularly in the context of college campuses. And so like, you know, for me, and the, uh, trust me, I'm not going to just regurgitate what I did in the G file, but I think it's an important point and I'm not going to engage. I know people hate it when I engage in Twitter stuff. Glenn Greenwald is attacking me and calling me a, you know, a, a closeted authoritarian because uh, I want to suspend free speech rules or something because of anti-Israel stuff on campus. None of that is true and it's all stupid and I don't take Glenn Greenwald seriously about any of these things. But I think the sort of, the basic point is that, you know, there's liberalism as an ideological construct, right? As a political project, as a set of, of abstract principles. And I agree with virtually all liberal abstract principles. And we're, again, we're talking about classical liberalism, not progressivism and all that kind of stuff, right? The Bill of Rights liberalism, right? I agree with all those principles. But I also agree that Sometimes those, those principles are in conflict. And then there's also this thing called culture. And the liberal culture is less of a science, right? It's, it's, um, it's something that works in tandem with, you know, it, it, it's an expression of the sort of more basic fundamental values of, of what a society is. And in your everyday life, you may be pro-free speech, but you're also pro-good manners, right? You're also anti-cruelty. And, you know, so the example I used was like, forget the October 7th thing. Imagine if when the first footage, the first newsreels came back from Auschwitz or Treblinka or Dachau, a bunch of members of the German-American Bund at Harvard or Princeton or whatever wanted to have a, a celebratory movie night and laugh it up or celebrate, you know, this this evidence of solving the Jewish question or whatever. Um, regardless of whether you think that's legitimate on free speech grounds, if I were president of a college, I'd say, are you high? Are you drunk? What's wrong with you? Um, that's just, that, that's not who we are, right? And I don't think that that ushers in this crazy slippery slope kind of stuff. And I just, it sort of just, you know, it gets toward those... I've been trying to figure out a way to articulate this thing. You know, I, I don't want to do the whole tribe of liberty thing again. I did a solo 
We called it that a little while ago. That was the working title of my book. But I had this conversation, I think, with Yuval a while back where I said, you know, I've been trying to I've been trying to come up with a way of explaining that contrary to what the sort of the new nationalists and the new post-liberal crowd claim, um, Americans is a liberal culture. Right. It just we're a liberal people. We were, you know, and if it it makes it easier for you, we're a freedom loving people. And if you think that like liberal and and I know labels distract us and stuff, but if you think the word liberal just makes it very difficult for you to understand that, it's worth keeping in mind that for big chunks of the 19th century to say you were we were freedom loving people or that we were a liberal people, the way you would say that is you would say we're a conservative people. Because we were conserving the sort of liberal tenets of the American Revolution and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all that. So the meanings of conservative and liberal can change. But this underlying thing that we were a freedom-loving people were the kind of people who say, you're not the boss of me. That, you know, I don't care if Jimmy Carter tells us we got to have the metric system. We're just not doing it, right? That's part of our culture. And, you know, similar to cultures of places like Australia and, you know, the UK until kind of recently. But even the UK with all of its closed circuit cameras and, and crazy, you know, speech code stuff, which I reject. Um, the Brits are still like big into privacy and they're big into like the things will set them off that, you know, violate the sort of British sense of what fair play and, you know, freedom loving means. And America just has a more robust sense of that kind of thing. And so the conversation I had with Yuval, I think it was with Yuval, um, it might have been with Tony Mills, is I think, you know, when you imagine someone saying, you can't do that to me, I'm an American, right? Or I thought this was America. I'm not saying that when you say that you're always right, because sometimes you're saying it as a joke. And sometimes, you know, in, at least in pop culture, people are saying that when they're in foreign countries and they break their laws and that's, there's a kind of an overtone of, of, of imperial hubris to that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when a cop does something wrong, when the IRS does something wrong, when a bureaucrat does something unfair, um, when you say, I thought this was America, you are not consciously, to be sure, hearkening back to Locke or Adam Smith or Burke or the founders or any of that kind of stuff. You're drawing on what you think it means to be an American and what life in America is supposed to be like. And that's liberal culture. And liberal culture is very pro-free speech. It's very pro-free expression. But it's also, in a very decent and good way, opposed to being a dick. I have no problem sort of working within the broad currents of American political tradition and American culture with colleges drawing some bright lines around certain behavior and certain actions that are just, you know, to use a very basic concept, you know, concept in poor taste. And I think, you know, celebrating the the rape and murder of a thousand Israelis, over a thousand Israelis, while they're still pulling bodies out of smoking husks um, and still trying to figure out who was taken hostage and who wasn't, is just grotesquely in poor taste. And getting mad at Jews for being upset by it, which again was the way it worked for the first few days, for the first week after October 7th, is just gross. And it's the kind of thing I have zero problem just as an act of sort of, you know, campus statesmanship for a school to say, hey, look, we're just not going to go down this path. You know, get control of yourself. 
Do you want to have a debate on campus? Fine. Do we want to talk about this in a classroom? Fine. But we're not going to have a situation where we're harassing Jewish kids on their way to class, you know, or leaving threatening notes and, and or never mind, har- actually harassing people and pounding on doors and, and all the rest. And I just don't really care if that violates some abstract notion of free speech. I just don't, look, I think there are, I had that conversation with Sarah's guru where we talked about the the Nazis marching in Skokie and all that, and I get it. And I think where I came around to sort of her position, but not for her reasons, was simply that in such a polarized society, sometimes you might have to just fall back on these abstract rules because we're we are so disputatious and so polarized that um, uh, just appealing to people's basic decency or our worldview isn't working right now, but I don't think that that's an argument against trying to live in that kind of society and that kind of community. College campuses, particularly private schools, right? We're not talking about public universities where I perfectly concede that law works differently for public universities than it does for private ones. Um, I got no problem with private universities having quirky rules that, you know, might bother an absolutist on free speech stuff. Like, it would not bother me in the slightest if Catholic universities, you know, said that it was grounds for expulsion for certain kinds of, you know, gross, you know, uh, sacrilege Um, or, you know, um, or, I don't know, you know, overtly uh, anti-Catholic protests. You know, it's a Catholic school. They have a right to raise, to, to educate kids in a Catholic tradition. I don't think you should be absurd about it or anything like that. But I think, you know, there's, there's room for judgment. What bothers me about the DEI stuff is that it it is about character formation. It is about moral education. It's just that the moral education that they're providing is distorted. And I think fundamentally at a very basic level, sort of anti-American um, and I don't mean that in some rah-rah, let me get on Hannity and talk about how they're all anti-American. I mean it sort of in a in an analytical, academic kind of uh, sense, is that, you know, there is, it's anti-American culture. It runs against the grain of historically, culturally, traditionally, however you want to put it, Americans conceive of their society by judging people by their individual character, by their actions, not by their skin color, all these kinds of things. Some of these cultural propositions that we had to spend more than a century working out, sometimes at the point of a gun, (laughs) to get right. And I don't think overturning all of that stuff um, in the spirit of social engineering is at all justified. And so I think DEI stuff, intersectionality, whatever we're supposed to call it, um, I think that stuff needs to go because it needs to go. Um, it's not because it's so anti, I mean, one of the reasons I need to go is, I guess it's because it really is anti-free speech, but it's anti-free speech, but the anti-free speech stuff is to me more of a symptom of the larger problem with it, which is that it is teaching kids. Um, and I don't just mean as a matter of ideology or syllabi or, you know, lesson plans or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, teaching kids as a, as a character-forming institution into this permanent sort of 
oppositional culture, protest culture, for kids to see themselves as oppressed. It encourages that kind of self-conception in the admissions process. It encourages it in orientation. These are not, you know, classes. These are like, here are the rules about the kind of kids we're going to take in and what we're going to expect from them. And they expect you to sort of live down to these DEI kind of propositions. And nor does it mean that everything in DEI is evil or 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 sinister or anything like that. I just think it's wrong. I think it's wrong in the way it approaches the fundamental questions about citizenship and self-conception and human agency and how to deal with people uh, from different perspectives um, and how to engage in life in a pluralistic society where you're going to run into people who disagree with you or maybe descendants of people who did bad thing to your ancestors. You know, that happens. If I held it against every single person who had an ancestor who did something bad to one of my ancestors, that would make my life really friggin' complicated. But one of the sort of, and this gets to sort of culture, right? This is one of these sort of basic Jewish Christian kind of ideas that sin or collective guilt does not pass along in your bloodline. It is not intergenerational. And obviously that's a hard thing for our brains to process uh, there are lots of people in lots of parts of the world, including in Europe, who still harbor grudges against people who, you know, whose great, 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 great grandfathers did something bad to their great, great, great grandfathers. But that one of the great things about America is its ability to sort of say, yeah, that was the old world. We're going to move forward. And I think that's part of what is best about American culture, American liberal culture is the ability to say, we're going to move on. Now is now. The future is the only thing that we should be working towards and not dwell on grievances from the past. And it's that culture, right? I mean, it's that culture that allowed us to become fr friends and allies with Germany and Japan and Italy really quickly. We're like, okay, we had a war. You lost. You did some really crappy things. And the, some specific individuals who were responsible for some of the really evil things, well, they're going to be brought to justice. Yes, you can call it victor's justice, but we're okay with that. Um, but we're not going to put our boots on your neck for the next 10 generations because that's not what Americans do. And having a little pride in that aspect of our culture and teaching that you should be proud of that aspect of our culture is something the DEI doesn't do at all and that these universities don't do at all. And that's the bigger problem rather than the, the, the infractions of free speech this and, or free speech that. Even though, again, look, I, I, I always want the, the, the free speech absolutist in the room to point out the problems. And we should also say the free speech absolutist, you know, like David French makes this point all the time. Under First Amendment principles, there are all sorts of limitations that you can impose on speech. They just need to be done the right way. And so that's why I say, like, literally 99% of the time, I'm with the Frenches and groups like FIRE, who I think do incredibly important work, and not just because they've sponsored the remnant. I, you know, I'm a big fan of Greg Lukianov and all of that, and I think that, that they're sort of, they're going to be part of, of the vital corrective power or the corrective process of getting us out of this mess. All right, so just want to get that out of my system, and I won't dwell on Greenwald's buffoonery or anything else. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant remnant hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I did get a chance on the plane ride out here to finally read the whole Neil Ferguson piece over at the Free Press. I'm a big fan of Neil Ferguson's. We're friendly. I don't, maybe we're friends. I don't know. We're, we're, we're very friendly acquaintances. Um, we always have a good time when we see each other. He is one of the most impressive historians living today. He had a great piece getting on this point about which is sort of why I wanted to get that stuff out of the way, about how there's this notion that somehow institutions of higher learning, um, that elite universities are inherently morally uplifting, that there's just something about the pursuit of higher education, to use a phrase, is necessarily morally improving. Um, and this is a very old idea. And one of the reasons why it's an old idea is because there's a lot of truth to it. But this is, you know, if we're going to pick on themes that I keep returning to, one of them is that just because there is often truth to something doesn't mean that it's always guaranteed and doesn't mean that there aren't really important counterexamples that prove it's not some iron law of the universe. And Neil gets into um, the role of higher education under the Nazis, during the rise of the Nazis and also under the Nazis. And this is something I... I once knew quite a bit about because when I was working on my first book and I'm really interested in one of the things he didn't completely get into, I, I highly recommend the piece. We'll put it in the show notes. One of the things he didn't really get into, which is one of the ways I got into it when I wrote about it in liberal fascism is there's a similar, just as there's this idea that um, universities are inherently morally uplifting and, and form good character regardless of, what they're actually teaching. There's also this notion that, which you've heard me talk about many, many times, that young people are inherently nobler. Yes, they're more passionate, but their passion derives from this, some, some sort of lack of corruption by the tainted nature of our institutions and they haven't sold out yet and they have this moral clarity that allows them to say the emperor has no clothes and all of this kind of nonsense, as with all of these cliches, there's some truth to it, right? There is evidence that you can point to, but there's also a lot of, of counter evidence to it, in part because, look, it is just simply a fact. Young people know fewer things, no less than older people do. And I don't just mean about like facts and figures and history and all that kind of stuff. They have fewer experiences. 
they have that one of the great things about being young is you haven't had all those experiences yet. So you have them for the first time and you think they're really, really exciting and new and wonderful. And then jaded old curmudgeonly people like me will say, yeah, 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 I know. I've heard that before. It wears off, whatever. Right. But this, I, there, there's a element of youth worship in politics and in ideology that is really power worship because young people, particularly in American culture, dominate the popular culture. That's not true everywhere, but it's true here, and it's been true here for a very long time, particularly in an age where we're all looking at screens. Young people, all things being equal, are easier on the eyes than old people. Young people are more attractive. They have more energy. They have more passion. They're, 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 they're more compelling, and they're having a lot more sex than old people. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of reasons why young people are, you know, dominate the imaginations of people, but there's also the fact that they bring passion into politics. And passion is a source of, pol of power in politics, and it can be very intimidating. There's also this well-established thing that we hear, I wouldn't even say every generation, we hear every five minutes about how children are the future, and therefore, therefore whatever the children think today means what we'll all think tomorrow, and the old people will die out, and so that they have, you know, the young people are on the right side of history, so we might as well join them now because they're going to end up winning anyway. That's not really true, or that's certainly not necessarily true. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is, you know, one of my big points in liberal fascism was that fascism in Italy and Nazism in Germany, and I'm going to say it again, it bothers some people, but Italian fascism was very bad. It wasn't remotely as bad as German Nazism, and they really weren't the same historical phenomenon. Lots of similarities. They weren't the same historical phenomenon. Um, you don't, you would never have got, if, if Nazi Germany hadn't gotten so powerful and basically overpowered Italy and made it a junior partner to the Third Reich, you would never have gotten if Italian fascism had just played its course by itself. It could have gotten a lot worse. A lot more people could have died. A lot more countries could have gotten invaded. A lot, a lot of bad things would have happened. A lot of authoritarian things would have happened that I do not like. I am not an authoritarian. But, uh... You wouldn't have gotten the Holocaust, right? I mean, that's just, that was that was an alien idea to the Italians that was imposed on them. We can talk about the rise of Nazism in a second, I guess. But the, there's something about the historic nature of of Germany, of the contingency of people like certain leaders like Hitler coming on the scene that make what we call fascism in Germany really distinct from fascism in other places. And I, I just think it's, uh, I, I don't go as far as uh, Daniel Jonah Goldhagen, um, uh, who wrote a really interesting book called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And it's funny, I'd say once every couple of years, I run into somebody who say how much they like that book of mine. And they think I wrote that book just because the name Jonah's in there. And they vaguely recall, I wrote something about, you know, Nazism too. But, you know, Goldhagen goes way back and has a lot of receipts on German anti-Semitism and German eliminationism and all this kind of stuff. I think he makes a lot of good points. I just don't think his thesis as, as, has as much explanatory value as he does. So anyway, uh, it came to mind because I was reading Neil Ferguson's piece, and he talks about Julian Benda, who I've written and talked about a lot. Um, I still find Treason of the Intellectuals in, a, in the original French. It's uh, you know, les traisons des clercs, which is clerk being a sort of very medieval sort of concept of the philosophers, you know, philosoph gets close, right? It's the 
the people committed, mostly priests and scholars and that kind of thing, committed to higher, the, the higher good, right? Or the highest good. It's not like the treason of the bureaucrats at the Department of Engraving or something. But the reason it doesn't translate well in English, and so they change treason of the clerks to treason of the intellectuals, which I do think makes it more understandable, but also loses a little something too. And um, anyway, Treason of the Intellectuals is a wonderful book. It's a bit of a screed. Um, you don't have to agree with all of it, but as a work of sort of political prophecy and a sort of a Jeremiah, is that the right pronunciation? It had a big impact on me. And, you know, and one of the things, one of the reasons that had a big impact on me is one of my arguments, which has not caught on out there, is that a lot of the philosophical currents in America, primarily through um, American pragmatism, philosophical pragmatism, and what was going on in Germany and Europe were kind of parallel movements. It's not an idea original to me. There are a lot of, quite a few serious philosophers and academics who've made this point, and even William James agreed with some of it um, early on. But there was a lot of cross-pollinization about this stuff. And my problem with American philosophical pragmatism is that it's a doctrine, philosophical approach that gives you permission to throw away the established rules, right? To sort of move in a straight line or politics as the crow flies, uh, whatever. It's, 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 it's an argument. I'm not saying that this is the way it's intended. I'm not saying that all pragmatists believe this, but the way it was received by progressives in America was very similar to the way uh, Nietzsche's thought was received by um, intellectuals in Europe, which is to say the old order was sort of a facade, a Potemkin village, a fraud, or it's, at least it's outlived its utility. And then in the new order, we should give over to people of great intellect and in some cases of great will, right? People of action who will do what needs to be done regardless of these silly bourgeois, Republican, constitutional, liberal rules that are getting in the way. And as you can imagine... This is an idea that I argue with a lot these days because it's all over the place. Anyway, so uh, Neil Ferguson brings up, uh, opens with some stuff from Julian Benda's Treason of the Intellectuals. And his argument is, so like part of Benda's argument, I should say, right? So he's the guy I got the phrase Nietzschean pragmatism from. Uh, what Nietzsche does and what, what people like you know, Heidegger pick up on later what is it that Nietzsche says? He philosophizes with a hammer, right? You smash the old idols, you smash the old rules, and you emphasize will and action. And, you know, in the early days of Italian fashion, fascism, it was called the cult of action. In America, it was called the cult of experimentation. This idea of not caring about how we did things in the past, as, as FDR put it in his Oglethorpe, Oglethorpe University speech, I think in 31, I want to say. He called for bold, persistent experimentation, which, you know, was uh, a callback. It was a deep cut to sort of William James' pragmatic arguments, which basically said, we're in new times. The old rules don't apply anymore. Let's throw stuff at the wall, see if it works. And if it works, build on it. And if it doesn't, try something else. And this always sounds really reasonable to people. And people, so many people don't understand why this bothers me. But one of the reasons why it bothers me is that you're talking about experiments on actual human beings. You're talking about experiments on whole communities, on a whole society. So if you start saying, eh, let's get rid of property rights and see how that works, or let's get rid of the market and see how that works, or let's, um, you know, 
let's get rid of free speech entirely and see how that works and see if, you know, blah, 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 blah. What you're doing is, is you're basically suspending liberalism. You're suspending the rules, which is something that you should always do carefully and not cavalierly in some sort of bold spirit of experimentation. Anyway, I don't want to get into FDR stuff. I can rant about him another time. You know, so Benda's argument, what the, what the real fundamental treason of the, of the intellectuals was, was that the intellectuals had in Benda's era, in Benda's writing, in the 1920s, 1924, I want to say, I should look it up. And so he kind of is predicting a lot of the stuff that happens in the 30s. Yeah, so he wrote The Treason of the Intellectuals in French, La Treason des Clercs, in 1927. Benda's argument uh, is that all the intellectuals who once had these very, I don't know, Aristotelian, Thomist, Universalist, Commitments, right? Monotheism, Christianity, these kinds of things. These things that, that, that were pan-ethnic, pan-national, pan-class, like that spoke to the highest good for all human beings. The intellectuals as a group in the 1920s and earlier had turned their back on it. He has this great line somewhere in there where he says that for the first time in, a, in 2,000 years, the intellectuals are siding with the people who made Socrates drink hemlock rather than with Socrates. And it was from Benda, and I think I've talked about this here before, that one of my, you know, my, my one neat trick kind of things about um, Christianity and politics is that whenever you see someone talking about how Jesus was the first this or the first that, other than like the first son of God, which is a, you know, it's not my bag, but it's a perfectly legitimate thing for a Christian to believe. It's like the thing for a Christian to believe. When they, when they, you, when they start talking about Jesus was the first of this or that, in the context of some political earthly movement, that's how you can tell Christianity is being corrupted. And it was Benda who first really pointed this out to me. It was that, you know, all over Europe, there were people saying Jesus was the first socialist. Jesus was the first nationalist. Jesus... Um, was an Aryan, which is not quite the first, but, it, you know, there's that part of it too. Jesus was the first eugenicist, right? And they'll quote something about tending to, snipping weeds out of gardens, and then they extrapolate that to human beings. That's the, at the meta level what Benda's indictment is, is the way with the rise of socialism and nationalism, the concept of universals so embedded and so inherent to Christianity in particular um, were being thrown by the wayside as the intellectuals came up with um, new arguments for their own teams to win in some global competition. Um, and so like his, one of the more famous lines is that intellectuals were, in, were committed to the organization of political hatreds, which would sound pretty familiar today. So anyway, Neil begins with all of that. And then he talks about how utterly seduced by Nazism, so much of the non-Jewish, for obvious reasons, uh, academic and scholarly and intellectual elite was in universities, how they subordinated their liberalism, everything else, their commitment to non-politicized education, they, they gave over to becoming good Aryans, good Nazis, good German citizens as defined by the sort of Aryan-obsessed Nazi government. And he has a lot, of, a lot of the stuff I knew, like, you know, talking about Max Weber and whatever, but he has got some great quotes from some, some scholars that I either didn't know or didn't remember. And so anyway, he doesn't get into this youth point that I was talking about. And so I went back to liberal fascism and I found a, just a 
couple paragraphs that I think sort of get at it. I apologize for the reading, but again, I don't know what happened in the news today. So why don't we start with, in cafes they howled at the decadence of German society and cadences reminiscent of Allen Ginsberg. In the woods they'd, commu they'd commune with nature awaiting, quote, messages from the forest. A Fuhrer or popularly acclaimed leader might read passages from Nietzsche or the poet Stefan George, who wrote, the people and supreme wisdom yearn for the man, the deed. Perhaps someone who sat for years among your murderers and slept in your prisons will stand up and do the deed, unquote. These young people, uh, Toland, who's a, I think Jonathan Toland is a historian, writes, thriving on mysticism and impelled by idealism, yearn for action, any kind of action, unquote. Even before the Nazis seized power, student radicals were eager to challenge the stodgy conservatism of German higher education, which cherished, cherished classically liberal academic freedom and the authority of scholars and teachers. A wave of Nietzschean pragmatism, Julian Benda's phrase, had swept across Europe, bringing with it a wind that blew away the stale dogmas of their parents' generation, revealing a new world to be seen with fresh eyes. The Nazis told young people in their that their enthusiasm shouldn't be restrained through academic study. Rather, it should be indulged through political action. The tradition of study for its own sake was thrown aside in the name of quote-unquote relevance. Let us read no more of Jewish science and foreign abstractions, they cried. Let us learn of Germans and war and what we can do for the nation. Intuition, which young people have in abundance, was more important than knowledge and experience, insisted the radicals. The youth loved how Hitler denounced the theorists. Ink knights, he spat. Um, that's a quote from Hitler, ink knights. He called, you know, mere intellectuals who didn't do stuff like invade Poland were mere ink knights. Um, what was required, according to Hitler, was a, quote, revolt against reason itself. For, quote, intellect has poisoned our people. Hitler rejoiced that he stole the hearts and minds of youth, transforming universities into incubators of activism for the fatherland. Okay, just like one or two more paragraphs. Uh, the Nazis succeeded with with the Nazis succeeded with stunning speed. In 1927, during a time of general prosperity, 77% of Prussian students insisted that the Aryan paragraph, which barred Jews from employment, be incorporated into the charters of German universities. As a halfway measure, they fought for racial quotas that would limit the number of racially inappropriate students. In 1931, 60% of all German undergraduates supported the Nazi student organization. Regional studies of Nazi participation found that students generally outpaced any other group in their support for national socialism. A key selling point for German youth was the Nazi emphasis on the need for increased student participation in university governance. Nazis believed that the voice of the students needed to be heard and the importance of quote-unquote activism recognized as an essential part of higher education. The Nazis' tolerance for dis dissident views sharply declined, of course, once they attained and solidified power. But the themes remained fairly constant. Instead, the Nazis fulfilled their promise to increase student participation in university governance as part of a broader redefinition of the university itself. Walter Schulze, 
the director of the Nationalist, the National Socialist Association of University Lecturers, laid out the new official doctrine in an, adre- in an address to the first gathering of the organization, wherein he explained that, quote, quote, unquote, academic freedom must be redefined so that students and professors alike could work together towards the larger cause. Quote, never has the German idea of freedom been conceived with greater life and vigor than in our day. Ultimately, freedom is nothing else but responsible service on behalf of the basic values of our being as a Volk. Professors who deviated from the new orthodoxy faced all of the familiar tactics of the campus left, blah, 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 blah. And I go on and on and on. Like, it was a youth movement. It was also an environmental movement, but that's neither here nor there, you know. Um, Actually, it's here in all sorts of ways because there's a lot of language and concepts that come out of a certain kind of environmental thinking that, um, and this is not a climate change argument, this is like the whole thing about sort of the, the naturalism fallacy, right, where you start thinking different groups of peoples are in, have some sort of inherent nature that requires conflict with my tribe or whatever. Actually, that's a good place to sort of pick up um, since I guess this is the Nazi show. How to do this. Um, a good way to do it is go back in time and write out some good notes about what it is I want to talk about and then stick to my notes, but we're not there. Okay, so like, put aside environmentalism for a second. Years ago, Irving Kristol, who many of you listeners know is one of my intellectual lodestars, he made this argument that the right had been successful in overturning Marx and Freud, and then the the third great figure in the triumvirate that needed to go would be Darwin. And I think Irving was wrong about that. I think he was in his older old age. He didn't understand how it sounded. I'm I am I believe in evolution, right? Um, doesn't mean I think the evolutionary theory has gotten everything figured out, but like, I believe evolutionary theory is the way to understand human evolution. And I personally don't think that is the conflict with religion that some people do. But anyway, Irving made this point. It started this big argument. My friend Ron Bailey was very offended by this. Ron's a big fan of Darwin and all that. Put Irving aside. It just, that's what came into my head. And let's talk about Darwin for a second. Darwinian evolution as science I think is is right, broadly speaking, right? I mean, again, we've improved upon what Darwin could understand at the time. We now do genetics and all that kind of stuff. But in that sense, as speaking as a scientific point of view, I'm a Darwinian. That does not remove the fact that the introduction of Darwinian thinking did enormous damage. Again, this is not an argument against the science. Science is good. But as even the most pro-science people, the most science-loving, follow the science, all that kind of stuff. The people who just, just like Neil deGrasse, Tyson, I effing love science. Even they will concede that from time to time, people take science metaphorically to do stuff that science cannot do, that science cannot explain. They'll take the metaphor that is implied by science and apply it to different aspects of our cultural or social or human reality that are actually kind of pernicious. 
And I'm not going to get into the history of social Darwinism because that is kind of, I've talked about that before. It's kind of an intellectual slander. Um, but so take social Darwinism out of it, but except in so far as social Darwinism, as, as a lot of liberal historians conceive of it, makes my point, right? What they think social Darwinism was um, and who was a social, Darwinism, social Darwinist illustrates my point that sometimes people can borrow from science ideas that don't actually, um, that aren't scientific in their application in other parts of life, right? That's part of my problem with the, I was talking about the bold spirit of experimentation. Bold spirit of experimentation in a laboratory is, I mean, as long as you adhere to the scientific method and all that, that's science, that's great, right? Bold, persistent experimentation in the realm of, of human lives with human populations not so good. And it's, uh, it's you know, what Friedrich Hayek would talk about is scientism, of taking the sort of the language and the conceptions and the organizational principles of science and applying to them to things outside of science that render those, those, those concepts unscientific in how they're applied. And Darwin, Darwinian theory, not blaming Darwin for it, Darwinian theory caused enormous havoc, right? And it didn't, it, you know, first of all, I'm pretty sure that Marx wanted to dedicate Das Kapital to Darwin, right? And it had all sorts of weird spinoff things. But one of the things it did was it reinforced and in some ways created a lot of ideas about ethnic purity that um, just spread like cancer, right? You know, these ideas that like basically the only two ethnically pure groups left were the Aryan and the Jew. And because nature is all about competition and, 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 and struggle and races between races, in effect, it was inevitable that the Aryan must defeat the Jew because it is in a zero-sum struggle for dominance. Very popular sort of thinking in the, in the late 19th century and incredibly stupid, just wrong. First of all, we now know from science that actually pure lineages can be, they're not always bad, <laughs> but first of all, they're much more rare than you think they are. And second of all, there's a lot to be said for mongrel vigor, right? You get, you know, you don't want too much inbreeding. This idea that somehow just refining ethnic purity leads to superior human beings and that the epiphenomenal superficial features that we aesthetically like, blue eyes, blonde hair, somehow connotes superior intellect or superior morals. It's all garbage, right? But it was very popular garbage back in those days. And it fed all sorts of things, right? So like one of the reasons why Italian fascism was never going to be Nazi, you know, genocidal Nazism, it's really hard. No offense to my Italian friends. I love Italian culture. I love Italians. I love Italy, all that kind of stuff. But if you study Italian history, it's just really hard to make an argument that there is this ethnically distinct, genetically pure blood Italian lurking out there. One of the things that makes Italy so wonderful is that it has been this melting pot, and sometimes it wasn't really a melting pot, it was a bunch of horrible people invading and killing people and raping women and whatever, but Italy has got is just this, this, this polyglot, multi-ethnic thing 
People have been coming in and out of the Italian bloodline since the Roman Empire. It's a seafaring people. Like, there's a, there is a thing called Italianness, but it's not really a genetic thing. And so, yes, there was definitely anti-Semitism in Italian history. And again, remember, in the 19th century, even for most of the 19th century, or at least the first half, you know, two-thirds, depending on how you want to get, there really wasn't this thing called Italy, nor was this thing called Germany, right? So this is one of these other ideas that comes in that gets caught up in this stuff about unification and the glories of unity. And if we're all fighting together, we're stronger. And that's what the symbol of fascism means. It's this bundle of sticks around an axe called a fascist. And it's just, it means strength and unity or strength in numbers. We can do unity another time. You've heard me talk about unity. So yeah, there was anti-Semitism in Italy going way back for sure. There's also philo-Semitism. I mean, there have been Jews living in Italy for a very long time because Jews are sort of an ancient people and there was a diaspora and you can understand how Jews would make make their way to Italy given, you know, that they were kicked out of the Middle East and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, during Roman times, there were we talked about this with Brett Devereaux, um, you know, Caesars had problems with Jews in the, you know, in in... I shouldn't just say the Roman Empire because that really doesn't narrow it down, but on the Italian peninsula, let's say, or in Rome. And um, so anyway, there was anti-Semitism or there was Jew hatred. I should make that distinction in a second. There was bigotry against Jews going way back in Italy, just like in like um, every other country. But it was in part because so much of Italy became, you know, uh, essentially... The Catholic Church, right? It was these were papal states. A lot of Italy for a long time, and it was you know the home of the Catholic Church for obvious reasons. It was fundamentally theological, not biological bigotry, right? The the biological racism stuff owes a real debt to Darwin, where you know you have people like this Wilhelm Marr, who's the guy who coins the phrase anti-Semitism, and one of the arguments that I won't always have no patience for is when Arab people or people of Arab descent or you know, Semitic people descent say, I can't be an anti-Semite. I am a Semite. Bully for you. That's great. Except like, that's not what the word means. Wilhelm Marr was a biological racist anti-Semite who came up with the phrase anti-Semite to make it sound scientific, to drag in this argument that it was about blood Right? They didn't really have the concept of genetics the way we do now, but blood, you know, was a stand-in for it. And it was this idea that by their bio, it was their biological essence. They're almost like Jews were a species, dangerous, inferior, superior, acting superior when they should have been inferior. I mean, like it's a, it's a complicated bouillabaisse that is anti-Semitism. But the essence was is that it was a permanent sort of mark of Cain, as it were, um, that, that so that even if you converted to Christianity, you were still a Jew. Not a secret Jew, right? That's some of the stuff you get in the Spanish Inquisition and all that, but like a Jew, a Jewy Jew. doesn't matter if you say, you know, you're a Catholic or a Lutheran or whatever, because it's in the blood. And that fuels a lot of the biological racism of the Nazis, is that it was seen as forward-thinking and scientific. Again, science sometimes, when science escapes the narrow confines of actual science and becomes a source of values in, in politics or culture, it is often 
a really dangerous thing. There's a great quote from Vergellen, which I can't give you right now, but like it, in an era where people are saying God is dead, science becomes the new God. And it's, it's the logical fallacy of the appeal to authority. And you can just say like Ron Burgundy, it's science when it's not in fact science. That's Marx's whole trick with scientific socialism, right? He got to avoid having to show his work by just saying, look, it's science. It wasn't science, but that was in the air. And Darwin has a huge amount to do with that. I think this is a really important point, which I wish I had dwelled on more in one of my books. Um, but I was, when I was thinking about it today, insofar as a lot of left-wing and Marxist-influenced thinkers like to put a lot of the blame for the problems of the 19th and 20th century on capitalism, right? That's why, that's the whole racket about social Darwinism is this, this false claim that all of the robber barons and all of the captains of industry were all social Darwinists. They weren't. Hofstetter just got that wrong. Put in the show notes my piece on social Darwinism. I think I read a whole article that I wrote about social Darwinism on this podcast a couple of years ago. That's not true, but that's really what it was trying to do was blame capitalism as being the, the villain in incorporating and in, in dragging bad science into society. When in reality, um, capitalism, yes, capitalism is about competition, but prior to Darwin, and again, I'm not blaming Darwin. I'm just saying that part of this idea getting hold in people's heads about racial competition, which fueled nationalism in a really specific way. If you were really rich, the cultural norm, at least in America, in um, the United Kingdom, in, in Europe, was if you were really rich, you should have noblesse oblige, right? You should, you should behave. If, you're, if the new aristocracy of wealth is going to be the new aristocracy, then they should take pains to take care of the least among us. And that's one of the reasons why you get so much philanthropy from the big robber barons is because they were, in fact, not social Darwinists. They were committed Christians. Um, and so you get, you know, the melon libraries all over the place. And you get, you know, you get poor houses and, and, um, and orphanages. You get the Hershey Orphanage, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Because these people got really rich and they wanted to save their souls or do right or just show their gratitude, whatever, you know, motivations are complicated. But they thought taking care of the least among us was their obligation. It was a cultural obligation. It was a moral obligation. It was a religious obligation. With the introduction of Darwinism, and, and um, Neil Ferguson gets into some aspects of this, although not on the Darwin point specifically, with the introduction of this sort of survival of the fittest stuff, you get introduced this idea that the genetically unfit, um, the, I can't remember, it's it, the, I can't remember the exact German term for it. It's Laban something, something. Anyway, it's life unworthy of life, right? And this is the part that Neil gets into a little bit with all these German academics who start getting into how to sterilize people, um, people, how to sterilize women, right? Um, often in grotesque and hideous ways. But if you're sterile, if you're trying to weed out the unfit, if they're unfit, why, you know, compassion is sort of, uh, it's one of these things that Hitler had no use for, right? The Nazis had no use for. It was a sign of weakness. It was one of these slave morality things that um, Nietzsche talked about. And again, 
we're not going to go down the rabbit hole of the Nazis and Nietzsche. I think Nietzsche gets a lot of blame for stuff he did not believe and wasn't responsible for. But the but Nietzsche did write stuff that was that lent itself <laughs> to being used and abused by Nazis in ways that were, yes, they were unfair to Nietzsche, but they were also like unfair to like millions of victims of horrible things, right? But regardless, this idea that nations were in effect biological entities, which is all over the place in the progressive era of the United States. It's all over the place in, in progressive thought, right? That This is where, you know, Woodrow Wilson, you know, where he talks about how the Newtonian constitution, which is like the, the clockmaker's constitution with mechanical parts that do certain things, that need to be overthrown. And he wanted a new Darwinian conception of, of, of relativism and of evolution which where the constitution would be a living constitution, right? I mean, this is where he doesn't coin, I don't think he coins the phrase living constitution. That's very old. But this concept of the constitution that evolves with the times comes out of German historicism, 19th century Germany. Remember, Wilson and all those guys were huge, um, hugely influenced by um, German higher education in the 19th century, worshipped Bismarck and all that kind of stuff. And they bring these ideas of how the, the nation state itself is this biological organism and it can't have parasitical groups living inside of it, that it can't have checks and balances, right, which, which are um, contrary to biological life, you know, our organs are all supposed to work in harmony, not against each other. These ideas all come out of, to one extent or another, the sort of Darwinian revolution in politics. And so anyway, the reason I think it's important is because, yes, capitalism involves competition, but this idea of liquidating unsavory populations and unsavory groups or competing groups does not come out of capitalism. You can, you can get mad at capitalism for wanting to turn all those people into customers, but it doesn't, capitalism, there's nothing in Adam Smith, right, that argues about wiping people out. It, 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 it's about getting their credit card numbers. It's just a different thing. This comes, again, Darwin didn't advocate it, but this idea of dis dispensable groups, or in the case of Marx, who's deeply indebted to Darwin, dispensable classes, right, these classes are now parasitical and need to be done away with. This comes out of Darwin, and you can see how, you know, Jonathan Haidt, uh, in The Righteous Mind and elsewhere, he's got this amazing stuff. We've talked about that here before about how one of the most powerful uh, impulses, instincts, subroutines in our um, evolved brains is this thing about hygiene, right? The hygiene is kind of, it's weird in what it does to our brains, which is one of the reasons why I talked about this a lot during COVID. I thought that one of the reasons why people were going crazy was because the part of our brains that is a, that is freaked out by invisible dangers like germs leads us to do crazy stuff, right? And I think that that was, and, and be jerks. And I, I think that was one of the underappreciated things about what happened during COVID and also what happened during, you know, the Spanish flu a century earlier. Anyway, one of the points that, that Height makes is that the part of your brain that does hygiene is really close to the part of your brain that does politics. And when I say politics, I don't mean like, you know, who's ahead in the primaries. I mean, sort of like the political conception of the community and the idea that there are unclean people. There are people with 
unhygienic practices or that they're a sort they're a dysgenic. It allows you to sort of start treating other people, other human beings, as as Donald Trump would call them vermin, right? As as diseases, as bacilli, uh, bacilluses of, of of germ vectors. That too comes out of this Darwinian thing and is applied to politics, so that. Jews are seen as these parasitical, not just in culture or economics, but as an essence, they're unhumans. And Hitler, you know, in Mein Kampf has this stuff where he talks about the first time he really recognized that a Jew in front of him was like essentially another species. And I think that that's one of these things that we have not sufficiently grappled with. There's a lot of, we've done a lot of grappling with the role of capitalism um, and markets. And a lot of that grappling was based on wrong premises we haven't done a lot of grappling with this aspect of things, and I think it's interesting. I'll just put it that way. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know, going back to the free speech argument, right? The reason why you have guardrails, rules, procedures, is that these are the things that... Um, when your youthful passion or your racist passion or your social engineering passion, which is a real passion, right? Power, everyone understands that, you know, this whole power corrupts thing and that power, you know, you can get power hungry and power lust and all that kind of thing. And yet it's amazing is the second you talk about social engineers or social planners or economic planners, people who like the idea of rule by experts they kind of turn off their heads, they turn off their brains and they say, well, that can't be about power lust. Of course it can. Like, you know, if you've ever dealt with the sort of prototypical bad bureaucrat, and there are a lot of good bureaucrats out there and we should be, we should, you know, not demonize all bureaucrats because we need good, and this is a Kevin Williamson point, we need good bureaucrats because we're going to have a, we need to have a bureaucracy. So if you believe in good government, you want good people working government. But anyway, but the prototypical sort of bad bureaucrat who just lets their own power go to their head, that's a passion, right? That's a driving passion as much as youthful passion or ideological passion or anything else. And the reason why you have rules is so that you don't give yourself permission to indulge your passion, right? That's why judges wear black robes because they are supposed to con and sit higher up than the, the, the antagonist in the courtroom is because 
they're supposed to be above it. They're supposed to be dispassionate. The robe is supposed to signify that they're taking no side in anything, that they're impartial, right? There are, that's why you have rules of evidence. That's why you have rules of procedure is because humans are faulty and they make mistakes and they let their passions get away from them. And when you have people who are sort of high on their own power on college campuses, they think they can abandon all the rules and just do what's right. And I, the reason why this is all in my head is I, I had a, I think we're going to run it as another remnant on here. I hope people don't mind. I thought it was a great conversation and I'm really grateful to Eli Lake. He's got a great podcast called The, um, the Re-Education and, and it got, gave me a chance to sort of articulate some of these, uh, some of my issues with the new right, know what time it is crowd and, you know, how to think about liberal abuses of power and whether or not they justify conservative abuses of power and all that. And it's just been in my head. And so if you can't wait to hear it, go check out uh, The Re-Education. Uh, Eli Lake's one of my favorite people. Uh, or I think we'll, we might run it, you know, in the next week or so on here. Um, regardless, you know, we were talking about the perfectly legitimate frustrations that conservatives have with the way they see progressives playing the game, as it were, and how they get to break the rules. The press doesn't mind because the press is sort of in on it and they're sort of on the same page. But when conservatives break the rules or Republicans break the rules, all of a sudden democracy dies in darkness and yada, yada, yada. You're familiar enough with the, the broad brushstrokes of all this. So the point I was trying to articulate, and I think I did an okay job, trying to articulate with Eli was that I have nothing but sympathy. I have not nothing but. I have a lot of sympathy for people with those frustrations. I have those frustrations. I've been writing about those frustrations for a very long time. I recently wrote, you know, this uh, last Friday's G-File was about Trump saying he'd only be a dictator on day one. I think using the word dictator is really bad and shouldn't do it, um, in part because it's sort of like dipping a toe um, in the water to give the sort of like, um, I don't want to be a hypocrite and say it's a slippery slope thing, but it's a way to sort of inoculate people to the concept of someone being a dictator. And I think it's bad and it's unseemly for a former president, never mind a presidential candidate, to ever say that they would be a dictator. Because to say you'd be a dictator is to say you reject the Constitution. That said, there was a certain admirable honesty to it because the way a lot of Democrats have been running for president for a very long time is to say, in effect, that they would be dictators too, that on day one of their presidencies, they would, um, you know, the example I keep using is Kamala Harris said that on day one of her presidency when she was running for president, she would uh, repeal um, Trump's tax cuts. Well, presidents can't do that on day one. Presidents can't do that at all without... Congress writing a law. And we have this, and you've heard me talk about this a million times, people want, seem to think that we live in a parliamentary democracy where once elected, you can do whatever you want if you're president of the United States and you can do it on day one. And they make these promises to do things on day one they don't have the power to do. And I, I'm very frustrated by the fact, and I've written columns about this for 25 years, about how I'm frustrated with Democrats and the way they do that. What I don't believe, and, I'm, and I don't think Eli believes this either, he's just... His, I think his frustration is more palpable. But what, what I don't want to do is say, okay, because they're doing it, we should do it too. The role of the conservative movement, it's only fairly recently that 
the idea that conservatism should be about promoting the Republican Party. And I've written about this a bunch. You know, conservatives were, you know, with the rise of National Review and the Buckleyites, were the insurgents, right? They were the ones trying to take over the Republican Party and make it more conservative and to therefore govern as a conservative party with limitations on the growth of government, limitations on taxation, you know, uh, strong national defense, whatever, you know, conservative stuff. Um, but to, to, to restore the understanding of what the government was supposed to do and not supposed to do prior to the New Deal or prior to Woodrow Wilson, depending on who you're talking about. Once the conservative movement basically caught the car, this distinction between being a conservative and being a Republican got really blurry. And a lot of people now think it's the job of a conservative to make the best arguments possible for what the conservatives should do whatever they can to make to help Republicans win. And this is something that, you know, gets at the very core of why we founded the dispatches. I don't believe that. That's not what we're about. Um, that's not what conservatism is supposed to be about. Obviously, at least prior to Trump, it was very easy for me to say as a conservative, I can agree more with the Republican Party most of the time. Therefore, I'm usually rooting for the Republican Party. But if the Republican Party is not going to be a conservative party, if it's going to be a populist, nationalist, right-wing party and throw overboard these rules, these procedures, these constraints um, in the name of, of victory, then count me out, right? I mean, I'll still call myself conservative so long as that has explanatory power. Um, I'll be damned if they can take the word from me, but, you know, I might end up having to. This happens from time to time in history. You know, progressives are kind of happy to leave the word liberal to actual liberals, which is, I think, progress. One of these days, the libertarians will finally be able to reclaim it and drop the word libertarian, which is so ugly. But uh, I think I'm a conservative because of the, of the things I want to conserve, right? I'm a conservative because of the things I want to preserve. I'm a conservative, you know, as I talk about it here all the time, you know, the, the Yuval argument about gratitude. There are things I love about this country in a patriotic, deep sense, in a cultural sense, historical sense, that I want to preserve regardless of what it means for some freaking election. And so the idea that conservatives so wrapped up in their team stuff, their Republican stuff, their partisan stuff, should start thinking that these things are just essentially ballast. Well, that's a right-wing version of the stuff that I've been talking about happening on the left for a gazillion years, and I want no part of it. And because I think the Constitution deserves to be defended because it's the Constitution. And if that makes me a progressive or a liberal or some other label in, under some new sort of reoriented culture, okay, then I'm that. Right, because that's that's the party I'm really belong to. Is the party of the Constitution, the party of traditional morality, the party of bourgeois values, right? The party of sort of, hey man, this is America, and you know we're a decent people. So the people who say, you know, oh, notions of democratic norms or decency or constitutionalism, you don't know what time it is. These institutions are rotting. So all you can do is get busy about what comes next. I say, screw that. In a really profound and passionate way, I say, screw that. Democracy, constitutionalism, liberalism, whatever labels you want to put on this thing, this project, this American experiment, that's the game. And there are always going to be threats to it. There are always, every generation, you know, it's the Reagan line, every generation, 
we have to fight for, for liberty because we're not born within our blood. This is my whole, you know, Western civilization invaded by barbarians thing. All you can do is carry the ball for your short time on earth and or the baton or whatever and then hand it off to the next generation and defend this stuff. The idea that you can just sort of call off the project until things, you know, until, you know, until Caesar gets a handle on things is to say end the project because that's not how this thing works. And that's not what conservatism as I understand it should be about. And one of the things I'm, just to bring it back to the Nazism stuff for a second, one of the things I've always been fascinated by is the degree to which horseshoe theory, right? This is this idea that the right and the left become indistinguishable, which I you know, rejected passionately for so long. It was the basic thesis of liberal fascism is that horseshoe theory was wrong, that as long as you're committed to these sort of classically liberal and traditional Judeo-Christian things, you cannot be a Nazi, right? Because the Nazis were not Christian. Yeah, they appropriated stuff in the same way, that, you know, Jesus was the first Aryan, you know, all that kind of stuff. But... If you go back even to the sort of the influences on Hitler in, you know, early 20th century, late 19th century Vienna, right? The anti-Semites, the, the nationalist, small n, socialist, small s, anti-Semites that were cropping up all over places like Vienna back in the day, they were, I mean, it expressed itself mostly as anti-Catholicism. But a lot of them, I, what's the guy's name? George Georg Schonerer? I think it was the mayor of Vienna, crazy anti-Semite, but also a good social reformer who, you know, got the garbage trucks to arrive on time or whatever. He did. He hated the Jews with a real passion, but he also wanted to, like, get rid of, I think it was, again, I think it's this guy. It's one of these early influences on, on Hitler. Um, he also wanted to get rid of Christian holidays because he saw them as a foreign cultural import, a Roman, a Mediterranean import or imposition on real Aryan stuff, and he wanted to go back to good Viking medieval holidays or whatever, right? This culture of oppression stuff, it finds scapegoats like Jews, but it also is more radical and sort of Rousseauian in its indictment of the whole system, right? This is like, this is why the anti-Semitism that we see coming out of this intersectionality stuff is really just of a piece, as I ranted about last week, of this broader anti-Western anti-American, anti-liberal project. And to me, it's a project about putting new costumes on old reactionary tribalistic ideas. But anyway, the thing I keep coming back to about this horseshoe theory thing, and I, I did write about this, I didn't call it horseshoe theory in, the, in liberal fascism, was the way in which early Nazis, right, um, when they were brown shirts or the... Um, SA or whatever. There were these other words, names for them. Um, but when it was brown shirts versus red shirts, you had these youthful people, right? They were all young people, mostly young men, because young men tend to be the biggest idiots, you know, fighting in the streets and all that kind of stuff. And it was amazing how much former red shirts could become brown shirts. And sometimes brown shirts would become red shirts. Maybe not in Germany because the brown shirts kind of won the argument. But the this ability to sort of just literally, in the case of red shirts and brown shirts, change your team jersey and join the side of what is supposed to be this opposite group was really pronounced. And there's a, there's a great passage about this in um, Michael Burley's 
the third, History of the Third Reich, which is a wonderful book about how there's this time this English journalist is, is backpacking essentially through Germany and he makes friends with these guys in an inn or a pub. And the guy, one of the guys, one of the Germans in the pub says, why don't you come back to, you can crash at my path. So this English journalist goes up to this loft where he's going to sleep and he sees it's just this total shrine to Nazi stuff with pictures of Hitler and marches and rallies and whatever, you know, I don't know, posters of, you know, of Nazi stuff, swastikas and whatever. And the British historian is like, wow, this is kind of wild. And he says, oh yeah, you know, all my friends are into this stuff now. Last year it was all about the communists, but now we're all about the Nazis, right? It was just the youthful passion, indulging ideological fads and all that really drove it was just this idea that the old order had to go. This is part of my problem with all these people who sneer at sort of liberalism and liberal rules and rule of law and constitutionalism and all that stuff, including norms and liberal culture and all the stuff I've been talking about. And because as they say, you don't understand, the left thinks everything is permitted. So we have to think everything is permitted too, because that's the only way we can defeat them. And the problem with that sort of thinking is that if you think everything is permitted, then everything is permitted. Then you don't actually have rules. You don't actually have an end goal. You don't really, I mean, you can lie to yourself about what your end goal is, but usually the compelling part of that lie is just atavistic lizard brain, total victory, defeat our enemies, hear the lamentations of the, of the women kind of BS. It's not like, oh, and then we're going to have this principled republic at the end of the day. It's always, it's the logic of the cancer cell, right? It's, there's always going to be some other, other, some other villain that is holding you back because at the core of, of youthful political passion, whether it's of the left or the right, is this fundamental utopianism. This idea that our side is invincible and morally right and perfect. And so therefore, any defeat must be the result of betrayal, of being stabbed in the back, right? That's what a lot of this Darwinian, that's how a lot of this Darwinian stuff led to Nazism in Germany is because it, it, it told a whole generation. I mean, there are a lot of other factors. I'm not trying to be... Too simplistic, right? The German government really screwed up in not informing the public how bad the war was going. All sorts of things happened, right? Contingency, history is complicated, yada, yada, yada. But one of the things that made the rise of Nazism possible is that you had a whole generation of people, and Hitler was a leader among, was a, was a pristine example of this among them, that had completely bought this idea that the Aryans were superior. The Aryans were, could not be defeated, the Aryans, if it was a fair fight, even a remotely fair fight, would have to would have to win because they're just the best, right? That's what evolution proved, what history proved, yada, yada, yada. And then they lose the war. And you have all these German leaders who basically were cowards, and they basically said, you were stabbed in the back. And you had the Nazis take that to the nth degree, right? Um but yet all these Germans said we couldn't have lost in a fair fight because they completely believed in the myth of German or Aryan superiority. And so when they end up losing, it has to be illegitimate. It has to be some betrayal. And 
At first, it was the old men in the regime, these corrupt institutions that we hear so much about today, right? That, that it was democracy's fault. It was uh, liberalism's fault. Um, it was the decadence of Western values, of modern values. And then when that wasn't satisfying enough, it became the Jews. The Jews were the real reason, right? There was parasitic thing that weakened German blood, that weakened the body politic. This kind of thinking, right, which finds, you know, specific expression in this biological racism of, of, you know, Aryan nonsense. But at a broader level, it's this utopian notion that all the best arguments are on our side. We are morally superior. We have a monopoly on political virtue. We have all the best ideas. And so anytime we lose an argument, it must be for illegitimate reasons. The system has been rigged. And that psychology cannot lead to a moral reawakening. It cannot lead to a moral restoration. It never does, right? All of these reactionary, fascist, nationalist groups, they always talk about national restoration and, and all this kind of stuff. But the logic that makes them obsessed with this, this logic that makes them obsessed about how they've been oppressed. What was it that um, Goebbels newspaper... The slogan was, a friend of mine sent it to me the other day. Um, it was something like fighting the oppressors for the oppressed, right? This oppressor narrative thing, you can't let go of it, right? It's just part of human psychology, particularly mass psychology. It does not, the resentment and bitterness and scapegoating that give that stuff power and strength is not healthy enough to build anything that you could call morally restorative, because it needs to find people to blame, people to explain why true communism hasn't happened yet, the thousand-year Reich hasn't happened yet, whatever. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Stalin goes in for anti-Semitism ultimately is like, you know, like they, you need internal enemies. The only real solution is to sort of fall back to the, the decency and the hard word earned lessons of America's liberal traditions. And that doesn't mean you can't be a very socially conservative person and still adhere to those traditions. I would argue that it's easier, that it's more applicable to being a, a traditional conservative and being a liberal than it is to be, you know, a leftist and being a liberal. Um, and that's sort of my position for, for a quarter century now. So anyway, this is why I, I think the people who say, oh, we got to, we got to, we got to burn the village of liberalism to save it, are kidding themselves and or they're deluding themselves and they're trying to delude the rest of us. And if that means I get stuck longer than I would like in the remnant, speaking to a handful of people who get where I'm coming from, so be it. Back when I was popular on the right, I used to end speeches all the time about how you should be a happy warrior because, and I guess I talked to Eli about this, so I don't want to steal all that thunder, but you know, it's like if you are a lover of liberty, if you're a lover of the free market, if you're a lover of limited government, if you're a lover of this idea of the individual pursuit of happiness, if you're a lover of this, of the, of this core basic Anglo-American Judeo-Christian tradition of individual liberty and, and, and community liberty and all of these kinds of things, you're always going to be outnumbered. But that's okay. It's okay to be outnumbered because... Most people don't think seriously about politics. And when the country is operating correctly, they don't feel the need to. And that's a sign of health, right? 
But like the people who take politics really, really seriously, they tend to be like really interested in power. Doesn't make them all bad and doesn't make them all wrong, right? But like some people want power to do good. Most people, they tell themselves and they convince themselves that they want power to do good. And sometimes they're right. But most normal people, they have no problem saying, oh, government should be run like a business. We need a businessman in here, right? Or we need a general or whatever. Or we just want the trains to run on time because they don't care about this checks and balances stuff. They just, you know, they want to live their decent lives and be left alone. And I, I, I have nothing but respect for that. That's the kind of country I want. That's the English garden in the, you know, in the sense I always talk about that I want America to be. As a consequence, it's almost always going to be the case that most of the people who get really involved in politics are going to want to be experts in charge. They're going to want to sort of run the show or they're going to want their team to do things that are inconvenienced by democracy or the Constitution or whatever. And all it just takes is a few happy warriors to say, yeah, well, that sucks for you, but we're going to stick to the rules. And that's, that's where I am. Is I'm a happy warrior who says I want to stick to the rules. And that means I'm going to criticize the left a lot because they don't want to stick to the rules. And I'm going to criticize even more the new right because they are betraying the thing that I think defines conservatism in a lusty pursuit of power to emulate the very worst things that they used to condemn about the very worst, worst aspects of the left. So there you go. If that sounds sanctimonious and self-righteous, so be it. Not a lot of you have stuck around this long. Um, I got to go downstairs soon and, and, and have a cocktail and hang out with some dispatch subscribers. So Thank you all for listening. I hope to write a G-File tomorrow. I don't know if I'll succeed. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.